Hello, and welcome to the Stonebridge Online Podcast Service. I'm Pastor John, and we are continuing our sermon series entitled Revealed God at Work, where we are looking at the signs that Jesus performs in the Gospel of John. And this week, we're looking at John chapter 5, where Jesus heals a man who has been lying by this pool, waiting to be healed for 38 years. So as we prepare to dive into the scriptures and to hear the word of God and to respond to the word of God in worship, um, before we dive into all of that, we do have some announcements so you can know about what's going on here at Stonebridge Community Church. So I invite you to listen to these announcements and then we will jump into the sermon. God bless you all and we're glad that you're worshiping with us. Welcome to Stonebridge. Here are some announcements and things to know. During this time of virtual and social distance worship, it's important to continue contributing to the ongoing ministry of Stonebridge. Here are the ways in which you can give. You can give online through our website at stonebridgecme.com. Click on online giving. You can give through your bank's bill pay option, or you can send in your offering through the mail. If you'd like offering envelopes sent to you, please contact the church office. Ventura County is now in the orange tier, and more and more people are choosing to get vaccinated. Consequently, Stonebridge is entering the next phase towards reopening. Next week, we will begin meeting weekly for worship. Join us outdoors on Saturday nights at 5.30 or indoors on Sunday mornings at 10.30. Kids and teen programming will also be available during both services. Pre-registration is still required. Please register by Fridays at noon. Stonebridge's May reopening includes preparing our campus for welcoming back members, friends, and new guests. And if our church is a family, then our home needs spring cleaning. If you enjoy gardening and landscaping, have ever wielded a paintbrush or broom, or have general fix-it skills, then invest in Stonebridge's future by lending a hand. Let us know you'll be joining us by calling the church office. And lastly, we would love to know that you're participating in worship. Continue to share your news, prayers, and praises by emailing prayers at stonebridgecme.com. Or if you're following along in version, please take the time to fill out the e-connection card. You are an important part of Stonebridge's community of faith. Once again, welcome to worship. Our scripture passage this week comes from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of God. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool, called in Hebrew Bethzatha, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there for a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. Now that day was a Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, The man who made me well said to me, Take up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take it up and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared in the crowd that was there. 
Later, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. Therefore, the Jews started persecuting Jesus because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is still working and I also am working. For this reason, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, thereby making himself equal to God. This is the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. Please join me in prayer as we turn to the scriptures. Lord, open up this story to us. Open up John chapter 5 to us, that we might see your work more clearly, understand your work, and respond appropriately. Help us to know how it is we are to respond to what it is you do in this world. We thank you, we praise you, and we ask this in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is now Jesus' third sign here in the Gospel of John. The first was Jesus turning the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. The second was healing the royal official son. And now we have this third sign, which is another sign of healing. Jesus heals this man who has been lying there for 38 years. For 38 years, this man has been trying to be healed of what it is that ails him. He can't walk. You can tell that from the way he makes his request to Jesus and lets Jesus know his problem. He's not able to take himself into these waters. The belief that he has and that many people in Jesus' day and in this time and in this town held was that this pool that he's sitting by is somewhat magical in a way. That a divine being, an angel of sorts, would start to stir the waters and that the first person who would go into the waters once they were stirred by this divine being would be healed. So this man, he's tried to get into these waters. He's tried to be the first one there, but he can't move. How is he supposed to do this? And for 38 years, he has been lying there. And then all of a sudden, in a moment, with just words, Jesus heals him. Jesus makes him well. Now, this man, there's actually been some debate about his response. Christians have debated Is his response positive or is it negative? There's been debate about him. What isn't debated about the man is whether or not he deserves our pity. He definitely does. This life that he would have lived was difficult. And he is rightfully desperate for healing. This man, he can't move. He's been there for 38 years, which means his family abandoned him there. It means he doesn't have people looking out for him. Anything that he would have been able to eat, it would have been based off scraps, things he could have begged for. That's what would have dictated his life, is what other people threw at him. On top of that, he's been lying there for 38 years. There's no way that he could have kept up on his hygiene. He would have smelled horribly. He would have had all sorts of other medical issues, skin conditions, sores. And that would have increased the isolation that he would have felt. So he is definitely deserving of pity. And Jesus shows him mercy and has pity on him when he heals him. And rightfully, Jesus does so. But where the debate begins to arise with this man is in his response from that point on. Now, some have said 
that he has a positive response because he bears witness to Jesus and he points to Jesus as the person who healed him. And on the surface that is there, and I, I understand why Christians have come to that conclusion, but in more recent years, a number of commentators looking at this passage, they've lifted up certain details. And when you look at the details of the story and you compare it to the other signs and other stories in the Gospel of John, at best, this man's response is ambiguous, but more likely, it's actually a negative response to Jesus. I mean, look at how it plays out immediately. Jesus heals the man, and the man asks no questions of Jesus. He doesn't even know what Jesus' name is. He seems to show no curiosity whatsoever about the person who has just healed him. He has taken up his mat. He has walked. He heard that instruction, but he didn't seem to stop and ask Jesus any other questions. Now, this is in a pretty striking contrast to people's response to Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. I mean, think of the Samaritan woman at the well who asks Jesus all sorts of insightful questions. Think about Nicodemus, who, though he doesn't understand Jesus' answers, he still shows a level of curiosity. Or later on in this gospel, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about another healing that Jesus does, which is of a a blind man, a man who was born blind. And that man, he asks all sorts of questions about Jesus. And when the authorities come and question him, he doesn't just hand Jesus over to them or point Jesus out. He defends Jesus. He argues for Jesus. He loses everything for that. He's thrown out of his synagogue. But at the end of his story, this is in John chapter 9, at the end of his story, This man who was once blind, who can now see, he becomes Jesus' disciple and follows Jesus. But the man here in John chapter 5, the man who's been lying there for 38 years, he doesn't display any curiosity. He doesn't seem too concerned about who Jesus is. I mean, later on in the story, Jesus has to find him in the temple. He's clearly not searching for Jesus, not looking for Jesus. Jesus approaches him and tells him to stop sinning. A lot of commentators have said that the the sinning that the man did was the lack of belief in Jesus, the lack of concern for Jesus. We don't know if that's true or not, but it is a possible interpretation there. But the more you look at this story, the more this man's response, it doesn't seem to be too positive. We have examples of uh, positive responses to Jesus, and this does not fit that pattern. So this man... His response definitely does seem a bit more negative. But where it really starts to seem negative is in the way he points Jesus out to the authorities. He's not just bearing witness to Jesus in this because he doesn't even know Jesus' name. He can't point to Jesus. He hasn't taken the time to learn who Jesus is. So he's not bearing witness More likely, what he's doing here is trying to pass blame. He's not supposed to be carrying his mat on the Sabbath. And the authorities, the Jewish people, they're questioning him. Why are you doing this thing that is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he says, it's because he told me to do it. The man who healed me told me to do it. That's more likely what's going on there. That he's passing off blame. And then when Jesus approaches him and tells him to stop sinning, What's the first thing that he does? He goes right to the authorities right away so that they know who Jesus is. So that they know who it was who told him to pick up his mat and walk. 
it seems like less of a story of somebody bearing witness to Jesus and more of a story of somebody trying to save their own skin here. One commentator has said that this man's action of turning Jesus over to the authorities, that it is either dumb or malicious. Either it's so naive about what these authorities wanted to do with Jesus that it may as well be malicious. Or he's actually just trying to throw Jesus under the bus here. Another commentator says that there's no real change in the man's character. There's no real response of wanting to follow Jesus. There's no curiosity about Jesus here. And when you look at the outcome of this sign, it's in pretty striking contrast to the other signs in the Gospel of John. The wedding at Cana, what was the result? The result was that Jesus' disciples all believed in him. Faith in Jesus starts to spread. The healing of the royal official's son, what's the result? It's that the royal official starts to believe in Jesus and his whole family starts to believe in Jesus. But here, John chapter 5, what's the result of this sign? It's that people want to start taking Jesus' life. They start trying to persecute Jesus, trying to chase him down so that they can take his life. This sign and this man's response leads to the real conflict in the Gospel of John that Jesus has. The man, the more you look at the details of this story, the more he just starts to feel like somebody who takes what he can get from Jesus and moves on. He gets the healing that he wanted, and then he's done. You start to see that his relationship is much more focused on his needs, on grabbing control of his life, which I understand again. It's understandable he's had a very difficult life to this point. But however understandable it is, that simply isn't what Jesus calls us to. Oftentimes, I think that we as Christians, we can start thinking that Jesus' work, that the point of it is for us to feel more control over our lives. We don't put it in those terms. But I think in practice, that's the trap we can fall into. Now, I've shared that I have rheumatoid arthritis. It's a lifelong crippling disease. There's no known cure. There are treatments that can help manage it, but there's no cure. It's not going to go away. And when I was first diagnosed, in the first couple of years, I had a number of well-meaning Christians approach me and say things like, if you pray in this certain way, you'll be healed. Or they said, if you believe in this certain type of prayer, and you believe with all your heart, you'll be healed, and this disease will be gone. I had one person actually tell me that there was sin in my life, and if I just cleaned up that sin, this disease would go away. Now, they all meant well, but that type of thinking, it betrays a certain type of view of God. It reveals, I think, an unhealthy view of God where God's work is there to help us control our lives. God's work is there to just fix this problem in my life. And I can really grab control of that myself if I just pray in a certain way. If I just say the right prayer and believe the right things and put my hands in the correct position and do all sorts of weird gimmicky things that all of a sudden I will be healed. 
that mindset, that understanding, it's just trying to get what we can get out of God. And that's not what Jesus calls us to. That's not the point of prayer. That's not the reason that we pray. And that's not the purpose of God's work. Now, as I say that, I do want to say something very clearly. I think we are supposed to bring our requests to God. We are supposed to ask God for certain things. And we're supposed to make our desires known to God. I think that that is important. And I think we as Christians, though, sometimes we get mixed up in all of this. And we start thinking that the point of prayer is to kind of grab control of our health or grab control of some situation instead of the point being just to express our desires and our wants and our views to God. Some people have said that prayer is important because it brings us closer to God. And that is true. I think that's definitely true. But I think prayer is important. And the reason why I pray the way I do and the reason why I still bring requests to God is really because that is the model the Bible gives us for prayer. And there is a difference between praying to try to control our lives and gain control of our lives and praying in the way the Bible teaches us to pray. Now, the Bible definitely brings requests before God. It definitely asks God to do certain things. I mean, look at the Psalms. The Psalms are all about trying to change God's mind in certain areas. Maybe not all about, but that's very present there in the Psalms. The writers of the Psalms, they're trying to change God's mind. They're trying to get God to intervene in certain situations. I think back to this story in Exodus that it's hard for me to wrap my mind around. In Exodus, there's a story where it seems that Moses changes God's mind, that it actually works. God is ready to destroy the Israelites. After Moses had been up on Mount Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments for too long for their liking, the Israelites decide that they want to make a golden calf and they start worshiping this golden calf. And then when Moses comes down and Moses and God see what has happened here and how quickly the Israelites turned away from God's rule of not creating an image and they start worshiping this idol, God wants to just destroy them and be done with it and start over. But Moses makes an argument and says, God, what will that do to your name? Why would people believe in you if you don't uphold your covenant with these people? And God says, Moses, you have a point. And it changes God's mind. That's the model of prayer that we see in the Bible. And when we bring requests to God, it's important to do so because that is simply what a relationship is. A relationship is letting somebody know what you want. Letting somebody know who you are, what is important to you, what your values are. doesn't mean that you're going to get everything you want out of that person, but you still let them know who you are. That's the model of prayer that we have in the Bible. I mean, think back to the relationships you have in your life. I really hope that you're not in all of those relationships and you're not talking to those people just so that you can get something out of them just so that you can feel more of a sense of control over your life. That's not the way healthy relationships function, but I think that that's functionally how a lot of Christians end up viewing prayer. They either think it's something that is there for them to make requests of God, or they've given up on prayer and just said, you know, God's going to do what God's going to do, so I'm not even going to pray. Neither of those are the model the Bible gives us. 
the model the Bible gives us is rooted in an actual relationship where we try to change God's mind and God responds in some way. And that response, it makes us more curious about God. And it makes us ask more questions of God and about God. And that value of curiosity, that trait of curiosity, that is really what is lacking there in that man's response to Jesus in John chapter 5. He seems to have no curiosity about what Jesus is doing in his life. No curiosity about why Jesus healed him. He doesn't ask those questions. He never even really gets Jesus' name. Curiosity is what is really lacking there in that man's response. But that curiosity, it's the foundation for our relationship with God. Christians should be some of the most curious people in the world. Because God's work is all around us. And if the purpose of God's work, if it's not to just let us control our lives or control our health, but if the purpose of God's work, I think, is really to make us curious about God, then we should be asking all sorts of questions all the time. And that, I think, is one of the main purposes of Jesus' signs. It's to raise questions. It's to get us to be asking questions about Jesus. And that's what leads to the deep faith. I mean, think about Jesus' mother. She makes the request of him to intervene with the wine in John chapter 2. And it leads to that sign. The royal official, he requests that Jesus would heal his son and it leads to that sign. These types of questions, Jesus invites these questions. Curiosity, it should be something that defines us as Christians. So this man, uh, sadly, he responds in what I think is a negative way. He's not curious about Jesus. And the first chance he gets, he turns Jesus over to the authorities so that he can escape any punishment for violating the Sabbath himself. He doesn't have any curiosity about Jesus. May we respond to God's work in the way the other people responding to Jesus' signs respond. May we respond with deeper faith, with more questions, with curiosity about what Jesus might be doing. May we respond by really entering into an authentic relationship with Jesus, asking him questions, responding to his work, growing deeper in faith, and being more and more curious about him. May that be our response. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. safe within your name this we know this we know you promise never to forsake but you began you will sustain this we know this we know Yeah.
Say hey. 
Your praise 